Well, welcome back to the uh, next instalment of AgWatch's podcast. It's uh, Rob Kelly from Agora Livestock here with uh, the two gentlemen of EP3. Can I say that? Yeah, you, you can. Plug that. I'm just saying that's another thing you guys do, uh, apparently. See, it's not easy, is it, Rob? No, I was really <laughs> stuck then. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I, think, I think it was, I was right. like, Do I call you by your Twitter handles? Do I use your real names? Do I get formal? It's, um, it's given it was just, and this is given it was a sprung on you yeah. twenty seconds before we hit record that you were doing the intro, which is now going to be our new thing for the podcast. Uh, don't don't Would you like me to try again? No, no, that's no. It. It was good. <laughs> we don't do edits. <laughs> <laughs> All right, right. Oh well, let's 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 jump into it. Uh, Rob, I've known you for a long time. I can twelve years, give or take, as long as I've been in Australia. Ever since you came across as a backpacker, Andrew. As, ever, ever since I got deported here with my criminal record. <laughs> so t- tell us quickly, very briefly, who are you? What do you do? Yeah, so look, I am the um, today uh, the, the founder and managing director of Agora Livestock, which used to be known as Livestock Pricing. Um, but, you know, prior to that, family farm, which is still in the family, got an older brother who's on the farm, Um an ag science degree and then yeah i think probably when i finished that ag science degree it was not long after that that i probably came across you i did um all animals and all economic stuff at, at uni in one risk management unit and then ended up doing sort of 12 or a decade decade of grain risk management and that um that was during that time where it was going kind to of pre pre-deregulation through through that deregulation process then spent a couple of years at a bank overseas and found out pretty quickly that banking was not my cup of tea and I'm pretty happy to get back out of that and then came home 2017 uh, first kid on the way kind of knew that we'd need the in-laws and my parents around a bit to help and looked at getting back into farming but again I was pretty intent on staying away from the family farm or having it as a separate business Um, and outside of that I don't know that I necessarily would work that well well with my brother and my dad Um, be a lot more arguing than we need and so and that then kind of started pulling on this little bit of string and it unraveled into livestock pricing and 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 now agora and you're you're in the west coast yes yep just based just in wa but most of our users are east coast like there's a, obviously the you know the density of livestock is is very east coast so that's a big focus for us before we uh before we go too far oh, yeah. down this pathway yeah. we, we, we do for, have to before we forget yeah Point. Yeah, we, we, we have we, forgotten a few times recently. Yeah, yeah, we have. And sometimes when we have guests on more than once, we sometimes forget to do the sixth sense, which uh, which is our little word association, just to warm things up. So I we're like gonna it. Fire, we're going to fire a, a word or a short phrase at you, Rob, and then just your first thing that comes to mind, either another short, you know, short phrase or a one-word answer. Andrew, yeah. you want to boot us off? Black pudding. White pudding. <laughs> Haggis. Bagpipes. Price transparency. Uh, 50-50. Livestock sale yards. Like the only solution at the moment. Access to data. Uh, Like critical. Uh, What's above critical? Whatever that is. Important. Yeah, highly important. <laughs> That's good. You're a wordsmith. You beat me to it. I was clutching. Price discovery. Essential. There we are. I think that's six, isn't it? I think so, yeah. Seven. 
Nah, it was six, I reckon. Six. Okay, I always lose. I always lose track once you get past. Once you get past Wait, five. One. One. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get past five, and I'm holding the phone, so you know I can't count more than that. Yeah, but that's but, all right. Especially when you've only got two fingers because they're all webbed. Uh, the uh, price discovery, yeah. Price yeah. discovery is is a is a big thing for us. <laughs> we we find it really interesting. Uh, you you you're involved in price discovery in livestock. Do you think price like why? Um, it's probably it's a bit about the, I guess where I've kind of come from. It's probably more about efficiency than and price discovery is a part of that. But when I started in, in at Plum Grove grain trading, it was pre pre deregulation, right? So it's price discovery didn't matter. AWB was the only price you had to pull or the cash price. The market deregulated and Plum Grove built daily grain, which they then sold to CBH. But what we saw from daily grain being rolled out, which is just a, you know, it was initially me with a spreadsheet sorting top to bottom PDF, send it out. Our PayPal account got locked on the first day of subscriptions for that because we just had this huge amount of money come in, which was pretty cool. Um, but Same all of a sudden... Same happened. Same happened. Yeah, it hasn't happened to me yet either. I'm still waiting for that. They've closed down Matt and I's OnlyFans account. <laughs> oh, really? Because we've because we've got too many subscribers. Too many, and it's too lewd as well. Too lewd. I was going to say probably not lewd enough, but there you go. I'm, <laughs> I just assumed. Uh, anyway, so what we what we saw with daily grain because it was people initially it was just so when people want to sell grain they know where the price is. And they know roughly where it is, so to buy calls and they have to call around four other buyers to find out if that's a good price or not. But what happened was farmers began using that, and one of the things was every day, and it became a decision-making tool, not just in the sales process, but, you know, what am I doing next year? Hmm. Am I locking in my spreads or am I going floating? They started speaking to the consultants who were also, you know, trying to figure out what deregulation meant. And so their consultants would call them and they'd already know roughly where the market was and their consultants could really focus on their business as opposed to, general this is what's happening this is what chicago did overnight kind of thing and so you know we saw very quickly how valuable that became as a decision-making tool um, and and an efficiency tool for the industry and so when i um once that was sold to um, cbh we sort of didn't have anything to do with other than using it as an accumulation tool but when i then went overseas and came back and there was nothing like that in livestock and people just relying on um, Salio reports and, um, you know, being being at the radio at one o'clock to hit the country hour for their Salio reports. Yeah. Like that was kind of like the level of information they were able to get. And then most people, and, and most people still do have an agent um, and they get information from them. But even then the agent spends a lot of time telling them what the market's done, you know, at a broad kind of macro level versus what does it actually mean for your farm? your specific farm like there's no point looking at a crossbred land price if you've got merino weather lambs or it's a mm. you know it's a proxy but it's not the same and it's demand is different and and so being aware of that and so i just thought that was an opportunity to solve that problem and you know exciting business something i'd kind of experienced a little bit with grain so was interested in having a look at it and but yeah you just find out very quickly so, so, are, you, so are you basically saying that grains is a lot more advanced and mature market than livestock <laughs> I'm going to say, in terms of price discovery, it's you know, I, I, what, when did the wheat market deregulate? 2007. Yeah, I'd say. Uh, so, so what are we? Yep. Call it 15 years. Yep. Well, I would say in terms of price discovery, grains is about 50 years ahead of livestock in terms of getting the information in the right place to the right people. And that doesn't matter if it's a buyer, an agent, or, or a farmer, or or you. Like it's 
it's one of those things I think it's no wonder people just get told if they want to sell, you know, put it in the sale yards because who knows where the market's going to be if you've got no price information. So yeah. why well, it's, it'd be like trying to, you know, trying to figure out what the wheat market's going to be doing if I took away all your data. Rob, is there a difference between price discovery and price transparency? Yeah, yeah. And I'm, um, which this sometimes doesn't sit that well with people, but I'm a big believer in price discovery to the point that if you should be able to find a price, if a price is available to you, you should be able to get that very quickly. It shouldn't take you a couple of hours to find it out. But if a price isn't for you, then I'm also kind of the view that I don't think that belongs to everyone. So if I, you know, if, well, Pigs a bit different, but if, if you guys are buying livestock and all they ever did was take your price and shop it around, I don't see why you should have to give me that price. And, and I think farmers look at that and go, well, we need to know where the market is, so we need to know where the price is. And that's fine. You should definitely be able to get a base indication of where the market is. But it would be a bit like the buyer turning around and saying, we'll show you all our prices if you tell us exactly how much stock you've got on your farm and when you need to sell it. And then all of a sudden the transparency, like, okay, I'm not so comfortable sharing that information because the trust just isn't quite there yet. So I'm, a, I'm of the view that if you, know, if you should have access to a price, so if you're a supplier of mine or I want you to be a supplier of mine, then you should get that information really quickly and that's price discovery. Price transparency is being able to see every single person's price in the market, which for a bunch of reasons doesn't make a lot of sense. Like if you're selling 20,000 tonnes a week or 2,000 lambs a ton, you're probably going to get a different number to the guy who's selling 200 tonnes or... 20, 20 lambs, depending on the time of year and, and what supply and demand is doing. That's an interesting point because as someone that you said before, you economist uh, trained as well and, and, and looked at markets probably you know, for a good while, like, like myself or like Andrew, and, and the normal view I would think for someone in that field would be that price transparency gives more equal market power in the market, allows for a more efficient market, you could argue, but you're saying yeah. that you, you don't think that should be the case in terms of you know, it, you know, allowing that much information to be open. Yeah, I think it can be um, misleading to the people that are in, in the industry as well because the issue with, and I think I don't know if people are from, not from ag or not from livestock looking at um, looking at the industry, livestock's a bit like real estate. You, know, you can have two houses, same street, built the same year, both three-by-twos, vastly different products. Um, and so when a, when a buyer puts a number out, there's a bunch of things that go into that and it's not just breed mm. weight and fat score like it's there's you know delivery conditions you know are you actually delivering the right product so that i just think means that all of a sudden if a buyer puts a price out um and i you know i obviously like buyers putting prices out but i've but i'm of the view that they're putting a base price out they should have room to move around that on the basis of what's delivered mm. no, i that's, think that's... look i think it's a sort of i agree with your point to an extent I would say that you, you start off with a, an indicative number. Like, let's use that 20,000 tons of wheat versus 200 tons. Yeah. Everyone starts off with $300 a ton is the indicative number. And then the, the, the guy with 20,000 tons might get 301 or 300. Yeah. And, and I think that indicative numbering system is, is right. But, but I think there's some commodities out there that don't even have an indicative number. And that makes no. If we, really, if we look at, say, I guess one of the ones we talk about a lot is... Oh, uh, let me think. What would it be? Uh, black pudding. Uh, <laughs> Crocs. Both, no, both of those. No, they have, they they, have numbers. They, they've, they've got yeah. price transparency. Yeah. Uh, 
and price discovery, but the fertilizer. It's one we've done yep. podcasts on it before. Uh, we've got a, a fertilizer census that we're trying to gather data. And, and we've had discussions with people in the fertilizer industry who told us that it's uh, it's not in their interest to have price discovery. And so to me, that is, again, yeah, it's, a, it's a funny it, one. It is really hard because we speak to a lot of buyers who would say, yep, yeah, we want everyone to know that we're in the market um, when we're buying a certain type of livestock. So if they might all of a sudden be looking for, you know, crossbred lambs. Yeah. But we don't want to show a price. And, and you kind of say, well, the indicative price is what you need to show them so that they do contact you. Because if you're just going to put your hand up, well, then you still have to wait for the for the seller to start the bidding or the offer. And and, and then to look at, at the right time of year, you know, every six months, that's kind of the right, you know, on the cycle that works. But it doesn't help you when you're trying to build a relationship if you can't share that that information with the right people. And you look, that's the view with our system. That's the way it's designed is that a buyer can go in and they can put a number out and they can share that with everyone. Or they might go, you know, Andrew, you're only doing wheat. You're not going to supply me livestock. Matt, you supply me livestock. You're in my livestock price group. So I will share a price. You'll open a platform, could be ours potentially, and you will see that price. But other people won't see it. So... We spend a lot of time trying to figure out how best to allow buyers to have more control over what they share, but encourage them to share. And then, you know, we hopefully can provide feedback on that to say, well, actually, maybe you're not that different to the rest of the market and you're missing an opportunity because there's a lot of business being done either through sale yards or, you know, just other other sales methods that you're missing out on because people don't even know you're there. And the buyers- Is that one of the... One of the one of the issues around over the hooks pricing historically was that there was that lack of transparency, and certainly that's what the the ACCC inquiry was was pointing at with the Red Meat inquiry from twenty seventeen. Um, and do you think, by, by the way you described there, that you allow buyers to have some control over the dissemination of their over the hooks information or price information, that that then gives them more comfort in providing that. To, to yeah, like well, I think one of the recommendations of the agency is like everyone should publish their prices and it just doesn't make sense. Imagine if you're, you know, not to pick on a big guy and little guy, but imagine if you're a small plant operating near JDS in a time of tight supply and JDS knows what your price is. If I was JDS, I'd be putting my price or whoever it is, 10 cents above you every week because I probably only have to do it for a year and then you don't exist anymore. So that price transparency is mm. going to hurt the little guys. Yep. in that case and and the, and there'll be a flip side where it actually hurts the big guys as well so it's about finding that solution that allows you know price discovery without everyone you know giving up what is essentially their you know, and the, the information that makes their business valuable and profitable because you don't want like we don't want less livestock buyers we don't want less processes um, you don't want less we want more com- competitive tension that's what will make the market operate more efficiently. In terms of yeah. in, in the last, how long has it been set up? You've been doing this for three years? Uh, so, yeah, so we released the first version of livestock pricing in late 2018. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and that ran for about three years and then we started the new version. What's been a, what's been the biggest challenge as a startup? Because Matt, um, Matt and I have got a startup as well now. So, <laughs> well, yeah, money. Um, <laughs> we, we knew pretty early on, like, we didn't want to be a subscription service for farmers because we knew that all of a sudden you're 
you're going to stop the people who potentially would invest a lot more in livestock from doing it because they just don't see the value in paying a couple hundred bucks a year for an app. That could potentially make them, you know, that much money on every transaction if they if they just understood better where a buyer's grids were and didn't send them light lambs or fat lambs or heavy lambs that weren't going to fit on it. So we then decided, so we've got, we've been funded by investors. Um, and so for the first three years, you know, we, you know, even now we're just starting to make, make money do, you know, through people booking in stock and buyers paying subscriptions. But so we've had to run on investor funds and that's been so raising money takes time um you know people say there's not a lot of investors or it's hard to get investors i think if you can get invested investment from the right space really valuable so you know we probably have we've got a bit over 40 kind of you know people or companies on our share register but more more individuals if you break the syndicates out and things like that and 80 percent of them are either buyers or sellers or more recently you know agents of of livestock who understand what we're trying to do um and so you get a lot of support from them but they're funding the business to get it to where it is and and now it's time to start you know making it actually earn its keep you mentioned at the start when we did our um our sixth sense i mentioned livestock sale yards and i i think because i when when you said it I, I got a little bit of a glitch i wasn't sure if you said livestock sale yards are not no longer the only option was that your answer no, or, I said they're at the moment. They they look, at the moment with the way supply and demand is for a lot of people. I said yeah, I've the only option, and I think at the moment that is. You can see why people go through a sale yard because hard to get book. Well, if you're going to process, you know, very hard to get booking space. Um, it's hard to get get in. So that is their only outlet. And so you know, we never. Well, so our aim is never to go and get rid of a sale yard or you know an online auction process. We think they are really important at the right time of year and the right circumstances. But I just don't think that's necessarily how I would want to sell all my livestock if I was a producer. And, you know, if I was a wheat farmer, I wouldn't go and put all my grain in an online auction every year. I think I'd be, like most are, trying to lock in a bit of risk throughout the year and then and then use that for, you know, when the time is right. And that might be because prices are going up and you want to see, um, you know, some more bidding for the stock that you're supplying or it might be because you can't get a direct price unless you sell them dollars per head of the sale yards and in which case you're probably not getting a great price but you're getting them off your farm which is what a lot of people need having to harvest. Mm. It's an interesting kind of outlook too though because um, if you look at those most recent numbers for the last financial year in terms of sale yard, you know, kind of throughput for MLA release I think last week. Um, yeah. There, there's a bit of variation, but I noted that in WA particularly, they've had, I think, three years now of declining sheep and lamb volumes through the sale yards there in WA. Um, I think it's something like 9%, you know, three years back, 11% down last year, and now 20, nearly 24% down Before, yeah. in terms of volumes this, this time around. Do you think some of that, like, um, obviously, the, the scenario in WA can be quite different to the East Coast um, for, for the producer, but do you think? that's signalling something else in the dynamic that, that people are looking for, you know, whether it's online um, sales, you know, because of COVID and they yeah. realise now, you know, what's what's driving There's, that? Um, actually, it's a good question. Uh, are the online sales that MLA do report on included in their sale yard numbers? I would have thought they would have. Maybe they're not. Um, no, no, they weren't. Well, not in this particular no. survey. These were the, these, yeah. Because they, they broke it down into sale yards. I think they do, yeah. Because they report at, on, like, Auctions Plus sale, sale yeah. I mean, that's one of the one of the things that do think MLA do is they do get their sale yard reports out. I think 
the data is sometimes confusing. The commentary is probably more value often as much as anything. Um, yeah, I, I think people are, and, you know, in WA we get a lot of support from the, from the sheep buyers. Um, people are becoming aware of actually there is potentially a better way for them to market some of their livestock and, and a part of it is not necessarily getting a better price, but it's getting a feedback they need to make better decisions with it. So they want to know if they send a line of stock off how that stock performs and they want to have a relationship with the person who buys it. There is because also some there is, all, there is also some benefit though when you said not getting necessarily a better price, but also having the ability to book in in advance, whether it's two or three months in advance, and have yep. a price set at that time. That that could be quite helpful too, just in terms of your managing of your risk, right? Yeah, and that, it's interesting. I mean, it's not purely a, a, a WA thing, but a lot of the time it's, you know, heading into the spring flush, people book in stock. They don't get a price until the week before it goes in. So it's just having the capacity and hoping that the market, that everyone in the market's around about the same number that you're not booked in with a, with someone who's going to pay you less. So that I think we help give a lot of comfort in that kind of scenario as well where people see what price they're getting for stock they booked in two months ago. They get a price this week and they know that actually that's not, you know, that's in line with with, with the, where the other marketers are. But, yeah, absolutely. I think it's definitely having that um, that certainty. And I, I've, I, d- I don't think that it would ever get to a point where a farmer can just go and forward sell their entire, you know, lamb drop out because you just don't want to be like forward selling your entire crop before you've before you've harvested is probably not the right solution for anyone. But but doing some of that and lowering the risk is really important. And I think people are better getting a better understanding now of you know cost of production and weighing that up versus what the actual return they need is. So I, I just I feel like since um, probably since I finished uni that most people who go back on a farm, it's dad does dad. That generation, not necessarily dad, does livestock and the generation below, which is sons and daughters and doe cropping because they look at a paddock and they go, right, I put this fertiliser on, it should increase my yield if I do it by 10% and I can look at the price and it's 300 bucks a tonne, so I'm going to get an extra 30 bucks a tonne. Does it make sense? And they look at their livestock and they go, well, I know kind of what it costs to breed them. I've got all these other costs that come around shearing, all this sort of stuff that I've got to do. And it costs X amount, and I've got no idea what they're worth. So, that, it, like, is that a good way that it, it might be worth a lot of money, but it might be worth nothing? So, why am I going to invest in that when I've got an asset that I need to get a return on, and I can lock that return in with like a, a pretty high level of confidence? And so, that whole yeah. lack of market information, I think, has seen people shift away from livestock. Do, do you think too that the fact that when I mean, I know there's been a few iterations of a, a proper futures market for livestock right we've had the mla contracts that that died of death and then you know the ryman platforms tried to get them up and running there's another current feeder steer platform now yep so there's a few and that's that's obviously had had anything added trade a month ago was its first trade and it's been about they've they've had one trade the ryman had one trade well i know someone who traded that and and who who did the ryman trade Uh, it might be you or me i can't remember which one it was (laughs) um yeah we had took a bit of a part on the but but oh, yeah. just do you think do you think that's the I mean I know there's been a few times where it's been tried to get off the ground but it hasn't you couldn't say it's really been a success just yet. I mean, it's, no. it's, the the oh, jury's yeah. still out for Stonex, but is that the next is that the next stage for livestock in Australia that we need a, a, a proper functioning futures market? Do you think? Yeah, I, I absolutely think it could work if it was deliverable, because you got to you got to you got to have convergence. You got to have the point where 
the person who's speculating on um, crossbred lambs, if that let's just say it's a trade lamb, 18, 28 kilos, um, two to four, you know, you've got to hopefully the um, measuring stuff whilst they're alive can be done because that's a big part of it. Um, delivered, you know, each state, so one of the main selling centres, pick two in each state or one. Um, if that was deliverable, I'd no doubt that you would see processors who were particularly the ones who had um, any feedlot or any grain trading exposure in their business would look at it and go, you know, I don't need to buy off a farmer if I can lock this in. Probably never going to take delivery, yep. but it's there if I have to. But yeah, if, you, yeah. if you're not, if you haven't got, if it's not a deliverable contract and it's cash settled, it just creates so much confusion. Like it's not that it can't work. It just creates so much confusion from the underlying market to use it that that's then becomes, you know, barrier to them using. Whereas if you said, yeah, you can lock these in now and you've just got to deliver those stock to Ballarat in, you know, it's once a month, this month, this time, and all of a sudden the seller's going, well, I can do that. And I, if someone, if I trade out of it, fine, I'll trade out of it. But if I, if I just take it and deliver it, that's okay as well. Yeah, I mean, that's a but fair I'll, point I'll too because the volume though as well. Well, What's that? Uh, well, well, volume and ability to actually trade out of it is the issue. Yeah, I think if you, I don't think you'd get the same trading volume as a like a wheat futures no. contract. No. But if you hold a wheat futures contract, a Chicago contract, you'd deliver it. Yeah, but but that is that so that's a deliverable contract. Yeah, it's a, yeah, and that is, that is one of the issues I you rightly outlined, Rob, with without them being the current you know iterations of the of the futures market contract for livestock aren't deliverable; they're cash settled, which which then means that. You know, they they provide a pri- ability to risk manage price, but from a producer, or, or I should say, from a processor perspective, they don't really have the ability for them to price or risk manage their supply. Right? No, and so no, you still so, you still got no stock at the end of it. You might have a lot yeah, of money, but if there's no stock, you've you know, covered. That's... Yeah, you've covered what you wanted to buy, but, you, but if you haven't got the physical animal, then you've got none of the process, and that makes a, a fair point because then because then with it, with a cash settled contract only. What that becomes then is that processors will use it just to risk their price, risk management. So then they actually become sellers into that market in the future, and they're going to then offer a direct contract with the grower for the supply. Um, you know, so then you don't have a natural buyer for the futures contract. Yeah, you need to. You definitely need to align like what the under. Like I understand there's going to be mm. speculation in the market, and you want that because it gives you liquidity. But you want to you want to support the, the underlying asset commodity, whatever it is, to be traded and delivered. Yeah, you've got to have a and natural that, buyer. You've got to have a natural buyer for whatever that futures contract underlying commodity is. And yeah. and with it with it with it not being um, with it not being able to be delivered, you don't always have that. Yep. Mm. That's right. And that's the that's the problem. That's why I just don't like I've spoken to a few few of the guys from we used to do a lot of futures obviously with grain, but on a you know we our own accounts and we would do it with our trading accounts. And so I've spoken to a lot of those guys since about it and, and a few of them have looked at the livestock stuff and just said it just don't see how it can work because it's not deliverable until that happens. And and I think that just takes, you know, you need to get the right level of support. And I don't think you'd want to, you probably wouldn't start out as a futures contract. You would just start out as a contract. Forward contract. Mm. A forward contract. Forward, and we forward, and forward, look, forward. we don't get a yeah, and we don't get a lot of that in WA, but you know you guys like TFI, JBS will put out forwards and they'll go three months. And that's, um, you know, for them, that's probably. That's a limit, isn't it, really? 
Yeah, I think so. Like when you don't know what you're selling at the other end, like if they knew what they were selling in 18 months' time, yeah, they'd probably put a price out for 18 months' time. But, if, but even, you know, even, so the waggy guys might be able to do it. But, but even, when you, even when you look at, say, wheat swaps, wheat futures, hardly anyone uses them anyway, really. Like if you think, think back to when you were an advisor, <laughs> yeah? <laughs> we're talking deciles, not futures prices now, I think is what, we, <laughs> what I hear lately. Yeah, but like you sort of, you have, I reckon it'd still be ten percent or less of. You mean of the Australian of the Australian of Australian, of yeah. Australian market would be using futures. Of from the yeah from a I, from I reckon, I reckon view, but in the west side in the west coast more so than the east coast. That's my experience. Yeah, I don't know if many of the um, producers use them that much any, anymore. anymore. But as a trader, like as a trader, are, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and and we, you just, yeah, you could manage your basis risk a bit better, probably because you had someone full time. Like that was the job, right? Like that's what they did. Whereas but on, if you're a farmer, but on that livestock, you wear a lot of risk. On that, on that livestock contract, the problem is getting a liquidity, b yep. is not deliverable, and c education. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and, and I think was it um, Dougal Hunter who probably spent. Oh yeah, Dougal. Yeah. Yeah. Most of my time at Plum Grove, he was out, you know, pushing the ASX contract, and it was just hard yakka. And that was a contract that had, you know, yeah, and it had a here's how it already works in another market, and it's hugely liquid and successful, but just pulling people across onto it. Like we used to trade it a little bit, but the barrier was liquidity, and so trying to get it all there at once was hard. But you know, I, I, think, it, off, I think I think it's improved a bit in recent times. Yeah, okay. Um, I haven't. But, I haven't looked at it, but we we traded it like when I was at Plum Grove, and it. And then you had then you've got Platts. Platts have got a West Coast uh, wheat contract as well. Okay. Um, so you got all these contracts that are out there, and this is the thing: it's easy to make a contract; it's hard to get somebody to use it. Got to get people using it. And, and yes. That's the thing. So, in terms of like when when you get like one of the issues you've got any sort of platform is getting people on it. Yeah. Yep. We've got the same. We've we've got to get people on our platform quotation marks uh, yep. did you get any kickback from anyone like agents or buyers or yeah we definitely uh and this is I, I can't blame anyone else probably other than myself for this early on when we started looking at this we, we obviously spoke we knew farmers wanted price information um we knew buyers were starting to want to see that information in the market they wanted to they wanted to be have the comfort that if they had the best price in the market that a farmer wouldn't sell somewhere else you know, all things, all things being equal, which they never are, you know, delivery times and all that sort of distances. And then spoke to a few agents, so this is what we're looking at doing. And they just sort of went, no, nah, that doesn't help our business. And so I kind of stopped there. Okay, you know, after speaking to five or six agents, agents that I know kind of personally, um, like, no, that doesn't really align with our business. And I didn't dig any deeper at the time or why and didn't think, well, is there a way that it can work for you? I just kind of said, okay, if it doesn't work, we're just fine. We won't won't do it. I've always said like we're agnostic to whether the agent um, is involved in the transaction. And a lot of the time it's actually the buyer that wants them there versus the seller. Um, but there's a lot of value to be had on having the right person involved in that transaction. Um, and so we never pushed on it, but so we just met, we were straight away butting heads with agents all the time. We'd go and say, look, we don't, you know, this information, anyone can use it. Um, you, you do what you want with it. Use it as a, you know, as a way to, open a discussion with this with the buyer and the seller or you know when your agent comes and you want to talk about different markets at least have an idea of what's happening on the east coast or the west coast when you're on vice versa um and so we copped a, a 
solid beating around the ears for that and have since then and haven't done anything to kind of stop it. We just kind of let that happen in, in the background. Um, more recently, we've kind of dug in a bit deeper on what is it that we're actually doing and how that can work. And so now you know, we have some agents um, who actually see the value in, in their business and it's all about efficiency. It's not about, you know, we're not changing the market. They're probably going to have different prices because they're selling, you know, 200,000 lambs a year. Yeah. So they're going to get a different number from a buyer than, than someone who sells 200 lambs. So they're starting to get more comfort in their own value proposition. Um, but, yeah, we certainly copped a, a pizzling from that. But having said that, you know, we got, you know, we would hear feedback from a lot of farmers whose agents had told them how useless the platform was and the information wasn't right. Yeah. At the same time, we could obviously look into the back end and see who our biggest users of our platform were and you can imagine who was, yeah, it was. And, and you know, we probably, I should have picked up the phone at that point and gone and spoken to them properly to say, well, at least understand what we're trying to do because if you tell someone that it's, you know, no good for all these different reasons and then they find out from us that that's not actually what we're trying to do, it doesn't help your you know, your argument at all. So at least be ed- educated but, but, on what they're doing. But it's the same as, like, Daily Grain, if you think of it, back in, I came to Australia 2010, the West Coast, and so we use Daily Grain. And people on the East Coast won't know what it is, but it's just, a, I'm looking at the website just now and it's not changed since then, I don't think. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's, it's exactly the same. Um, but if you, if you it basically has a, a board where you can see the prices, APW, the top five bids, whatever, yeah? And and but it's the same as you got with agents as you you could have had for brokers, but brokers used it. And yeah, they, they well, and they, and they they would use it to look at it. We used it as an accumulator, and we would look to see well, where's Glencore? Okay, they're a dollar above us, and let's go a dollar above them. Yeah, and it was just an instant point of contact where the broker would phone. I don't think anyone any brokers were necessarily felt threatened by Daily Grain, did they? No, I don't know if brokers did, but consultants did. Our consultants all of a sudden thought that that was, you know, that was their job to be the provider of that information. And the issue is they didn't have the system to give that information to their clients. Like a lot of them weren't sending out a daily update on markets, whereas a lot of them do that now. Was that, um, and daily grain has changed a lot in the background. Like it does have but, a market but, place. But it's, but it's was that part, was that part of the reluctance, reluctance from agents to engage? Do you think that their view was the same, that that's their role to provide the price information to the producer? I can tell you it is. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I, I think it is, and I think it's. But what I think we've had to. What I'm, yeah. I, but I also think that it, I still see them being like I could. You could dump a farm with a heap of price information. It doesn't mean anything without context. So, um, the, the you know the the agents that we're now engaging with are so confident of their own value proposition that yeah they don't care if if their clients or they want their clients to know where the market is because they don't want to spend the first ten minutes of every conversation telling them you know that. There was this many head at Catanning, and this is what the sales did, and this is what you know East Coast prices are doing. And this, when they pick up the phone, talk to them, they go, right, don't I know what's happening? We can just jump straight into it. Okay, you've got a line of whatever it is over here that needs to go, and yep, that's what the price is doing. Booking space for those guys is three months away, so that's you know you need to plan accordingly. And they don't, they don't have a problem with that, and they look at it and see that this is just a way for them to you know probably if anything potentially take on more clients and save time. Or maybe just maybe not take on more clients. Maybe spend more more time at home with their Because like we, we we've been doing this for six years, yeah. Like market analysis or whatever, yeah, publicly, and we did get a bit of flack early on, I would say, <clears throat> from some agents uh, when we went to do like agent workshops and whatnot, as we were previously part of Ruralco at the time. Yeah. 
And uh, we did get flack then and feedback then that we were stepping on their shoes by we should be the conduit for information to them. Uh, to the, I think to one, the one of the one of the one of the comments was that they didn't want the they didn't want the producer to be too well informed or something, wasn't oh, it? Because they didn't want them knowing it? more than we know. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Yeah. So that, there was there was a little bit of so reluctance. Was, so, 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 yeah. So I don't I don't I don't well, necessarily I don't have a lot of sympathy for the people who just want to treat the clients like mushrooms. So if that's your business model, look at any other industry, and I don't think that's sustainable. Like that just doesn't work. But if you can inform your clients to the point where they make a better decision and they have to speak to you less, they actually will value you more. Like that's it's all about having the right information at the right time. Yeah. I think that's it's but it's. I, it's I, I think you're right though as well. Like I'm, I'm not like I don't have a daily grain subscription anymore, I, and I don't need one. I, but I don't really see the relevance for me. And I guess that's the thing. What I do think is important is that contextualization is what you're saying. Like you can, like you can throw a number out there, or CBOT's up two percent. Well, what does that mean? Yeah, and does, and that and that might sound like a lot, but you might be thinking actually that should have been up. It should have been limited up last night. And what is what is it? What like this week's a prime example of that? Yeah, Sunday we wake up, the grain deal out of Ukraine's cancelled. Monday markets up thirty six dollars. It kind of looks like it's probably overblown. Next day it's down twenty six. So it's about understanding the what yes. and the whys and the what next. It's the analysis, and and I think some agents don't realise how much of that they do beyond like just looking at prices. So they just think I like, give them price. You know, if that's the only thing that the farmer hears in the conversation, and it's it's not, and it's so that's the you know. And but look, if if the if the agent isn't servicing their client, like any consultant, really, they should be. You know, in my view, as an agent, really, as a consultant, or should, a good agent is a consultant, is if you're not giving your client the ability to make their business more profitable, you're not adding value. You're not adding enough value because they'll find someone who will, and it won't be, but it won't be, a, it won't be an app that. Re- that replaces them, it'll be another agent. Hmm. What about like going back to sort of general stuff? Yeah, ag tech again. Like looking at ag techs around the place, we've we've looked at loads of them over the years. Grain seems to have a plethora of different apps and software solutions and different things, whereas livestock seems to be a little bit behind. Would you say? Yeah, I definitely feel that there's been obviously some, you know. Auctions Plus has been around for 30 years and and probably got a real kick like COVID obviously helped probably on the adoption side of that, but they are obviously investing really heavily in the technology side of it. But startups is, um, there, there seems to be fewer, there's a couple of big ones I think that start making it. Look, when someone looks at the industry, so that's a solution I can solve, but, you know, it's something to do with herd management or AgriWeb have been however much money they've raised, am I going to be able to compete with that? And so there are other platforms like Mobile, for example, Mobile. who are, are out there doing it. But I think that almost because you have such big players, there's this in certain parts of the livestock industry, there's this kind of perceived barrier to entry, mm. which I'm not I don't necessarily agree with. And I think, yeah, livestock, whether it's production or um, you know, the market side of it, yeah, it doesn't seem to have the same investment, but it's it's a bigger, you know, bigger contributor to the economic the economy than broadacre cropping. Not all cropping, but broadacre. 
Yeah. That barrier, that barrier to entry, though, could mean that only the better ones get through, you know, get filtered through. So the fact that there's less could mean that could be a, a positive, not a negative, Andrew. We're not, we're not inundated with all the shit stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and so if you're not up to par, you're going to have to work very hard. And, you know, and we have made mistakes with our product along the way that we've got pretty quick feedback on to sharpen our pencil and improve the way it works. Like our, you know, our app a month ago was a horrible experience versus what it used to be when it was livestock pricing. And we've, you know, worked very hard to make it much more user-friendly. But if you don't get it right, you don't get too many chances. It's like it's a it's a strength and, and a, um, well, I think it's probably more of a strength of the ag industry is that farmers and, and livestock buyers um, and agents don't just pick up every bit of technology that comes across the desk. So it's really hard to get into that market. But it means that when they do kind of invest in it, and that might just be investing time and using it, that they probably can be quite sticky and they can provide really good feedback. You know, and we've done that through like our user groups, but also through our investors. Like our investors have a big say in what our business does. And that's why having them as buyers and sellers is, is good and agents because we know we're building something that they want. But but getting it out there and getting it in front of farmers, it's a challenge. Like everyone, you know, you cannot go and just pump Facebook ads and you can't, um, you know, a farmer is not going to do the same as a 20-year-old uni student who's sitting in a biology lecture, play on an app for 45 minutes, figure out how it works. If a farmer can't get it to work now, it's probably the last time you'll see that farmer until you actually pick up the phone and do it again. So it's a tough one. And then I think the other thing about ag is, um, you know, it's not as sexy on the potential um, return on investment for investors because, they all sort of want, especially get that visa, they all talk about wanting 10X and they don't want 10X. They want 10X on the ones that work because they know a bunch of them won't work. Yeah. But people in ag typically seem to go, well, here's what it is. I think the return could be X and it might be, you know, five times the current valuation. Mm. And the investors are going, well, we're seeing ones that are like 20 time valuations. Like, yeah, well, okay, fine. I'll put a different number in my spreadsheet. I'll give you a 20 time valuation. We both know that's not going to happen maybe. Yep. But that's where it is. And so we, you know, we look at it when we raised the money, we went in and were pretty conservative on what we thought was achievable market share um, and, and disbursement in the market and said, look, if that's not in line with where you want to invest, then we, you better we both agree to that now. Don't come in thinking that, you know, this will be a, a, a unicorn. So this AgWatch's podcast is valued at 20x, 20 to 25x. <laughs> I'm, that's because I'm a buyer. of all the. I'm a, I'm be, a buyer today. That's, be, that's because of all the natural fertilizer that gets spoken in yeah, the so podcast. We're up, so very, <laughs> when I say we're up, we're, up, we're up to twenty five times, we're at twenty five dollars now. So. Well, look, and, and and that's another good point because your starting valuation is really is really important, too. and that's a, that's another issue. Like, what, how do you value your business when you're pre revenue? Like, that's that's just something that our our investors have looked at it and almost said, well. We understand the problem that you're trying to solve. We understand the scale of the problem, so we can understand why the valuation is what it is. But if someone is outside of ag, they'd be like, I don't either, it's not high enough, and so why are you doing it? Or it's too high because we just don't see the scale. And, you know, people in the industry go, no, that's, it's a real problem. That's, that's why we invest. But yeah, so if, yeah, the, the, the multiplier is one thing, but the starting point is another. Yeah, we'll have to work that out, Matt. We'll if Ag Watches is is going for twenty five bucks, I'm uh, um, yeah, I'm I'm going along that all every day of the week. Well, no, when, when, we actually do have a value. I'm just thinking we could value it, Matt. We mm -hmm. got 
that sixty dollars worth of black pudding. Well, when, from, when you from, say we, is this the stuff we, in a can? No, no, it's no, it's, that's it's high, no, it's, that's haggis in a can. I've got I was going to say you must have a container of that stuff. He brings bucks. it back. He brings Come, containers back every time. Every time he goes back home, he brings back a bag full of. No, I got, a, I got a, a bag of Scottish food from that cafe in Melbourne. Yeah, and that's what I said. When you say we got, you mean you? I got. Yeah. Hey, 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 hey! We're all in this together. Well, you two are. I'm not. But and you two we, are in this together. And we got the uh, we got those polo shirts, the merino that's polo true. shirts from. That's uh, true. From Steve. Oh, merino ones. Merino yeah, ones. Yeah, nice. a good a, a quality West Australian. Um, Producer of uh, of merino polos, they're fantastic. The, the, this podcast is brought to you by. <laughs> yeah, well, Captain Viet, look, the, some, maybe it was yeah, Jay Kelly and Co. They'd still do a bit of wool. So, but uh, it's yeah. So, uh, speaking of mobile, actually, I just I just remember mobile because mobile on their LinkedIn, they're apparently their farmer members rated us as a top ten podcast. Of like every podcast, or just specifically ag, or specifically agriculture. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah I think we're the top. Yeah. In fact, no, no, look. So on my Spotify, in fact, I figured fourth, out fourth, a rate fourth, fourth place. Yeah, of, of 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 agricultural podcasts in Australia, that's got a Scottish host and an Australian host. We were at number four. We're, we're number so four. if you're on if you're on Spotify listening to this, because I only found this the other day, and I'm pretty sad about it. I'm at tech, given where we are, but you can click on the actual, not the episode, but the show. And you can just rate it in there now. Can you? So I did that. You gave you five stars the other day. I don't know if anyone else. Is. I would, but no. So I have on my podcast list. Um, I have you guys. I've got one that's about kind of startup stories, and it's just stories about people who have been through kind of the journey, but not, no particular industry. Um, startup West, which is like startups in WA, and there's sort of short stories. Just you know, like Swan Systems was on there the other day. Like if, um, so that's a good one. Uh, what other podcasts do I? But that, I don't listen to too many podcasts, but the ones that I follow, and there's some that were on there that you know you guys used to be on that I I don't listen to as much anymore. And I think probably what's timely about them is that these podcasts, maybe maybe not the one I'm in, but the other ones aren't so time sensitive because that's the problem. If you do a podcast and it's a market mm. update, oh, and yeah. I don't get it till three days later, oh, no, I might no, as well go back no, to the country. Yeah. And that's what we tend to do is we tend <clears throat> we probably avoided market updates. We only do market updates every now and then when we think there's something interesting, or when we've forgot to get a guest in, <laughs> which is generally the, the latter rather than the, the former. And, yeah, or uh, something that's a bit more longer term marketing trend yeah. as opposed to what happened today at the sale yards. But what what you find is really interesting is when you look at the stats, uh, and this is a bit of a Hoiberg tangent, mm-hmm. uh, is when you look at the stats on on podcast downloads. It's just the first two days, really. Like the first two days yeah. after it launches, that's when ninety percent of the downloads come. Maybe, maybe, maybe a bit more in the first week. But uh, big, big fans like Liz Jackson in WA. Well, she, big, she listens to it. Yeah. yeah, she sometimes. I think she must re- listen to the episode over and over again. Uh, well, I, don't know. I must be. I think I'm a, a closet fan compared to Liz, but I do listen to them, and I. But I, I tend to save mine. Like when I listen to a podcast, it's not. I won't listen to it. Um, I'll just go and walk the dog in the morning because I can just do it without thinking. But by the time I get on the bus to go to work and come home, I'll be on my emails or um, doing work on my phone. So I'm not paying attention. So when I get yeah. when I listen to them is when I get in the car. Yeah, it's and, and I need to be able to get in the car without a screen five and two year old who just on their snack bitch. So or you know one <laughs> of us is. So you know I'm driving, trying to listen to a podcast and and feed two gremlins is 
not conducive to road safety. So if I get that time in the car, I'll chew through hours of podcasts. But yeah. but if it's well, market that's, updates, that's, that's, that's three only, weeks that's, later. That's the only time mm. I listen to them is when I'm on a long journey. Yeah. And, and I need to stave off the tiredness. I don't listen to hours, obviously, because hours is fucking half a dull as hell. But, you know. So, uh, well, no, the guests are good, but I just, I, just, I, just, I just couldn't listen to my voice for 40 minutes. It'd be horrific. Uh, but yeah, so what's the next stage? Uh, well, look, yeah, so we've got a, we've actually, um, I'm not sure what the, when this kind of comes out, but we are probably, upgrading probably, probably out. Friday or what day is it? Yeah, today? right. Okay, so quick. Very yeah, quick. Tom- um, tomorrow, tomorrow, I think, isn't it? We, we, we would have done it, we would have had it released 10 minutes after we stopped recording, but we've released another podcast this morning, so... Yeah, so for me, um, so I like my role in the business, MD, but that really just means making sure everyone else can do what they need to do um, and then product manager. So I kind of drive the next bits of the product and what we're doing. So it's really now for me that, that includes a part of sales as well is going out, getting buyers, agents to look at the buyer side of the platform and how they can use that to share prices yep. and pushing, you know, getting farmers to say, look, if you want, a bit of free market information. Doesn't, the app is free to use. So you can download it. You can get your sale reports. You can get that. We might be able to get some um, EP3 or AgWatchers content out through it as well. Like that's something we're pretty interested in seeing it become more than just prices um, that we'd like to do that. And then, so that's the kind of the next stage is, is really about growth. Uh, and then, you know, with the buyers coming on board, it's about solving for them in particular, the problems that they have on a, on a management side. Because I think what people don't, realize particularly in wa you know if you're if you're in the grain industry in wa you're a paper trading business like you did not have to touch typically a ton of grain because cbh do everything it's just a a line in your spreadsheet as to what it costs that's not how it works for a livestock buyer or trader like there's the logistics become important it's a it's not a um that's a very perishable product, really, in the sense of kind of a lot of egg commodities. So there's a, a bunch of problems that livestock buying companies spend a lot of time managing and, and there's a lot of human error involved that we're trying to help them with. And they're not complex solutions. It's just making sure that the information's in the right place. Um, and that's that whole supply chain efficiency. I think people look at us and go, you're talking about supply chain efficiency. You're talking about cutting, cutting the fat out of livestock markets, which is kind of where we see our vision yeah. immediately and fairly enough you know, to this point without kind of explaining ourselves. People look at it and go, well, you're just trying to cut out the agency fee. And then I look and we have to sit down and explain that. And we've got to articulate that better. But if I take Plum Grove as an example, I was the kind of one of the head of tradings at Plum Grove and I'm not a good trader. But what we did really well, it came down to, is we had really I was good at spreadsheets and macros. So I could run my numbers at I'd get in at 8.30 in the morning myself, Dave Pritchard, Tony Smith. We'd have a quick chat about numbers. We'd run a macro and a spreadsheet based on what we thought the market was. It would spit out FOB values across the country. So we could go to our shareholders and say, if you want 10.5% wheat, you're going to Quinana. If you want high protein wheat, you're going here. If you want ASW, you're going to South Australia. Yep. Another button would send an email off. We'd go and get a coffee. By nine o'clock, they would be back to us saying, this is what we want to buy in each port zone. Then we'd use daily grain. So we'd pump that number out and that would then, farmers would come sell to us. By that stage, you know, Melbourne's three hours ahead and AWB still didn't have their numbers out. And so the bit of the supply chain, it wasn't our margin that got cut, it was our cost. Mm. And so we look at it and go, well, I don't really care so much what the agency fee is. It's the fact that the agent is selling time 
and they've got not enough of it. Yeah. So what about if you had more time? And, and the same issue for the buyers. It's the last thing anyone wants to be doing in ag at the moment is try to hire more people. And that's a different tangent. Don't get me started on that. But in government no, grants we could, for we creating could, we could jobs always... in ag, it's like we don't need to create more jobs in ag. We need to get rid of jobs. Like we need we need to scale the people that we have. So what, most uh, most most of your staff are IT guys. No, no. So we, which yeah, actually, that's a good point. Um, so we initially I, it was because I, I saw you had a job advertised yesterday. So we're now looking for a, yeah a, anyone who's interested in ag tech a lead front end developer. So we have outsourced. So we when we raised some money a couple of years ago to build this, we went to a, a company in Perth. We actually built CDH's um, delivery form app. So they took it from the carbon triplicate to the app. Farmers were not necessarily keen on that at first, but they love it now. Um, get a lot of information out of it they wouldn't have got otherwise. Your grains arrived at the bin. This is how much it was. This is the quality. They get that on their phone. They love that. And so we went to them and they built a lot of platforms for people. It's kind of their, that's what they do. It's third-party development. And they said, actually, we are trying to figure out how we can start investing in these businesses rather than just building. So they said, what about if we do it at cost and we take a bit of equity instead of a mar- instead of what is normally our profit margin? Yep. And it's been great and it's, and their view has always been and our view is that they're never going to be a majority shareholder. They're not getting board seat. It's just a way for them to start investing in some startups that they like the idea of and they liked us because we had users already on livestock pricing. But that that's a finite agreement because they get a certain amount of equity for it. Yeah. And so now they're helping us to try and find our front-end developer. So our senior back-end developer was full-time with them and then is now full-time. He's transitioned to our business. Um, and so we're looking for a front-end developer to kind of fill that role because they're very different yeah. different things as I'm, I'm figuring out. So, yeah, so we're looking for that person who – and, you know, it's a it's not niche in terms of finding a front-end developer, but finding developers at the moment is like probably every, everyone in ag gets very hard to find people. But finding someone who's a front-end developer who um, likes the industry and wants to be in it, that's, that's what we can offer. Like we, we'll, we'll pay the same salary as everyone else. But we want someone who likes it because we want them to be around for five years. They'll be, they'll be leading our, our front-end platform. But you also need somebody that's got the right personality as well, which IT yeah. guys can be difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. We, we saw our back-end guy. He's a, you wouldn't pick him as an IT guy. Like you've seen he's out racing go-karts in the country on the weekends and loves tinkering and, and he's you know, welding and all that sort of stuff. But he's just a, um, he's like a diesel engine on the back-end. You just plug, you know, incredible on that side of it. But finding someone on the front-end who's, you know, we want them to engage with the buyers. We want the buyers to be able to sit down with them and say, this is what my system needs to do. Or, you know, for the guys who are working on the app, they need to go and speak to the to the farmer. They need to be out there. They need to see that small writing with a light background, you know, in an, on a farmer's phone who probably might have bad eyesight, screen's cracked, uh, it's an old phone because he put his new one in the wash, um, you know, you can't you can't run that the same way you run a, a normal app, and so the yeah. usability comes really important. It's a bit like some of the some of the more difficult IT guys to work with. I've found are guys that did IT at uni and then went into another industry like I don't know grain trading or something else, and then and then move. You know, so they still kind of got this IT background, but they're no longer in IT really. They they can be really hard to work with those fellas. Yeah, I imagine that not, not, like not, not sure you're talking about. So. Yeah, I, I I feel like that's yeah that's it. A skeleton somewhere there that I don't want to open the door for. I, that's because like, I. Are you looking? Cause, is, cause do, I'm, do you I'm, happen I'm, to know someone who was in that space? You might be looking for a front end developer. Or... Well, I'm. I'm just thinking. Uh, 
like I'm, couldn't, I'm, I couldn't I'm, recommend him. I'm not, I'm not fans of my current sort of, uh, 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 sort of business partner. And so I'm thinking, like, I've got a background in IT, yeah? So I did, I did, I did computer science. Never worked in it. But can't be that hard, you know? I agree. There, there'll be I YouTube, agree. There'll, like I'll, just, I'll just come in. No code. In, in the morning time, drop. YouTube tutorial, afternoon, do some work, you know? Yeah. You get on LinkedIn now and then you can get endorsed for it. Um, exactly. And you will be like a um, – I will endorse you for it. And you can uh, – I, no, I, I, look, look, I did do H, they still H, write H, 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 HTML, JavaScript, and CSS. I'm all right with that. I'm good with that. Next I thought you only do C double plus. That's all you can write in. Do you do VBA? I got to mind, friend. VBA, yeah. yeah. Next JS, I don't know what that is. React, I don't know what that is. Uh, they're kind of the new. And they're, they're ah, but look, by the way, it says we're not concerned about specific years of experience. There we go. I should premise, yeah, we don't care how many years you've been doing for it, doing it must for be good. as long as you either can learn it really quickly or you're good at it already or you're, and you've got to be passionate. Like, that's, it, it all comes down to as well. Like we, I think every company has it and you can be, you can when you're small, like a no dickheads policy, right? Like you just want to know that when you go to work to work with someone, you're just as happy to have a beer with them, which, you know, it took you guys, I think from, from a few episodes ago, I found out it took you guys a long time to realise that potentially – you were uh, worth having a beer together, but you know, yeah, we, like, I'm, start, I'm, starting, I'm starting to I'm starting to go the opposite way again now. If we, yeah. if, if well, we had if we had a no dickheads policy, there'd be no one working here. <laughs> well, well like, it's it's all or nothing, right? So you you know, it's, it's you can't have positive and negative. You got to no, have so two positive things. Right, right. But I think that's, 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 that's why our employment policy is all dickheads. On the, dickheads on the, on the <laughs> like, so our senior developer, right? So when he started with us, he. Um, what he wanted as a part of the package was because we work in the office with these other these other IT companies, other developers. Um, and he said, "What I want is I want to be able to work from home, but I still want a desk in the office, um, and I still want uh, you know we, we kind of set him up to work from home." But he knew the team very well, so it fitted in. But he wants a desk in the office because sometimes he needs to come in for work, but he wants to also be able to come in on Fridays when they go to the pub for lunch because <laughs> that part. And and so straight away you, you kind of know that if someone comes in and they're like, oh, I like your officers, and they start talking to people, they're right. Well, this person's probably going to be able to fit in. And when they have a problem, they're not going to go into a little shell and oh, I don't know what's happening, but I'll just try and code away at it and see what happens. They get up and ask. And that, you know, that was the value for us. We, the, the developers we've got were probably the most, you know, one of the more expensive quotes that we got, but sitting and, and certainly more expensive than our previous developers, but sitting in an office with them, means that when they have an issue, they don't spend a day trying to figure it out, then come to us with something that's not quite right. Yeah. They stand up, they come over and they go, is this right or wrong? And so me being in the office with the developers, which would be the same as if you have your in-house developers, is well, would save us, I reckon, 30% of our time. And I think that's a challenge with a lot of offshoring as well, is if you don't have a really good line of communication, and you can have it remotely, but if you don't, then nah, you're just wasting time. You're not getting eight hours, eight hours out of an eight-hour day at all. <laughs> And uh, we understand that as as fellow ag tech startups, we uh, we got a website, so we're an ag tech startup, and uh, we've got spreadsheets. What's the web address for that? I've forgotten. Could you say? Uh, I don't know. We actually don't have a website for this, do we? We need to get a website for ag watchers. Well, for ag watchers. What about for the other one? I can't remember what it's called. Oh, we don't talk about that one. EP three, that one. We don't talk about that. Don't talk about that. It's separate separate entities. I'm just going to check what the website for that one is. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta keep it completely separate, because uh, that's that's our professional side. This is our, 
That's for tax for tax purposes. <laughs> for tax purposes. <laughs> Uh, you got to make money. You got to make money before you can pay tax. So that's so, well, yeah, yeah, that's right. Tax is only a problem if you got to pay it. It's <laughs> uh, well, we're not for profit. Oh, that's yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's not, what we're going to do. We're next. not for profit enterprise, yeah. and not intentionally. We just, <laughs> we just we just we just happen to be not for profit. So. Uh, I think it's you know like understanding what you're good at and sticking to it. Hmm. So because you're basically you're basically just doing an iteration of what you did back in 2007, really. Yeah, and then transferring yeah. across, and yeah, and and just understanding. Like, I mean, daily grind could have been it, it. It started off very strongly, and it it diverted a little bit, maybe along the way, and made it hard for itself. And it, and and for a bunch of reasons that are not necessarily specific to the product, but maybe CBH as a cooperative have to you know have to deal with certain issues differently yeah. than what a private company can. But when daily grind started, there's it started as a spreadsheet that got PDF'd and sent out and we spent like a way, huge amount of time just trying to figure out how to stop people from sharing that spread, like forwarding the email on and it didn't matter, farmers didn't do it. So it was a subscription thing. And then not long after it started, uh, we got a call from some people when to come see us, our little office in Frio. It was Grant Thomas um, and uh, I think it was Sarah Scales. Oh, Sarah Scales. And it was, yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm fairly certain it was. Anyway, it was... Clear Grain Exchange. Uh, and they came to our office and they sort of, it was really hard because we had this system that, you know, we hadn't invested a lot in. It was very much a startup. And they kind of told us about Clear and how to do all these things and, um, you know, how amazing it, it was. And it wasn't like they were telling us, there was kind of no end to the conversation. It was just like they just told us and then they left. And we're like, well, are they telling us to just give up or, you know, what's happening? What's happening? We didn't, I can't, we sort of left this meeting going, wow, they've got this amazing system. We don't, we're never going to, this is never going to work. Anyway, that system then went from them to NZX. X. I think it might have gone somewhere else in the world, maybe profile of NZX. And profile now, of NZX and Nathan. Yeah, now Nathan Cattlesport. So Nathan and I went to, to uni with, sporting school with, uni with, lived with him for a bit. Um, it's, like, it's like a little clique as well because you've got played Trent Smoker. And Smokes is in there now as well. So, um, but you know what? And then, and Nathan has, I think, completely. And rebuilt the platform, but what made it work was he just understood that it wasn't the technology; it was a problem they were solving and mm. explaining. It was an education process, and they just didn't. I just don't think they got that right at the start. And so Daily Grain got a long way when it probably shouldn't have. If if Clear hadn't have kind of jumped so far ahead of the market, so it'd be like it'd be like Agora starting out with a futures contract. Mm. Like just what a great way to spend ten years driving around and getting no uptake. Yeah. I think that's that's the clear we have we've done a podcast with Nathan in the past. Yeah. We'll probably get him on again soon actually. We met Nathan yeah. last week, two weeks ago. Awesome um, business. Awesome. It, yeah. And and just normal. But, but the difference like but you're right. And this is what we've said all about ag techs all along is it's there's a lot of shit ag techs out there. Uh, I don't I don't like being called an ag tech business either, to be no, honest. Like a, te- I think- a tech tech business. But it, but you it are, be, you, it's, it's, you are it's, wearing it's, a black skivvy. You are wearing a black skivvy, though, Rob. In this, it's um, not a skivvy, but I put my branded shirt on. All right. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm wearing a pair of footy shorts and uh, a jumper. I'm not wearing pants. I, <laughs> I saw that when you stood up. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, am. Uh, I let the dog out. I wear pants when the dog's out. But uh, the uh, no, but it, 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 well, it doesn't matter whether it's an ag tech startup, whether it's a tech startup, whether it's a normal startup. It's still just about solving a problem. It is. And, and what I found with a lot of ag techs is that 
they were solving a problem that nobody actually thought was a problem. Get a solution without a problem. And, and you're like, well, like no, there are a lot of these like paddock apps and stuff. The average farmer has got a, like a pocket notebook. Pretty good solution already and, working, right? And it works and it, and it costs nothing because you get it from the local CRT or elders or nutrient yeah. or whatever. Well, that, yeah, that's like, that's a good point because the usability is all about like making it as user-friendly as possible. Like I'm not so concerned to me personally, if someone gets a push notification for our app and that push notification is enough for them, they don't need to open our app, it's job done. Doesn't I, matter as long as, it's, as that's, long as it's signed up. I just want them to have the information. And if they can use us a bit more later on, like to get more information when they need it, great. That's there too. But but if you think that you're going to all of a sudden take 20 minutes out of a farmer's day for a problem they don't, it's not their top of their list, no. then you got nothing. Like, I mean, the number of times people have tried to invent like the electronic gate, it, it, every farmer would use it. No one's cracked the nut. But if you try and raise money to build an electronic gate opener, you struggle because that's going to cost a huge amount of money. Most farmers probably aren't going to invest the amount that you need them to to make I that do, work. I do really like that pneumatic. Isn't that the Isn't that why? Way. Isn't that why you have kids? Well, yeah, or or a partner. <laughs> but 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 coming back to like it's simplicity, and if you look at what we've done over the years, is like I used to get a lot of articles and stuff from consultants and whatnot, and they're so full of jargon and overcomplicated. But what we've aimed to do is just simplify it. So our, a lot of our articles are not like you wrote an article yesterday, Matt. Mm -hmm. It was probably not much longer than a tweet, really. But it had all the information you need. That one about exactly. ex export flows. And this is what oh, I've, yeah. like everyone, like we said, it, it's, everyone keeps coming back to the same thing. I had this discussion yesterday with someone and the day before with someone else is about labor. Nobody's got any labor. Doesn't, doesn't matter if it's like I was talking to uh, somebody who's a teacher yesterday. And they were saying that, you know, four year four in school, and two of the teachers are going on uh, annual leave. One's pregnant, and then it's like, well, what do you do with the rest of them? And you can't get staff. You still got the same number of students. So I think no one's everyone's time sensitive, and so you got to make it as simple as possible and to the point. Yeah, you got to you got to increase the value of the assets that you have, and that's your assets might be. Well, R, if you're a farmer, it's, it's typically land, time, and people. Hmm. Well, people, time is just a factor of people. And, so and if you can and, give a farmer and it takes, an hour back it takes, in his day. It takes 12 years to get a person up to workable standards. Yep. 12 and, years, nine and months. So, exactly. And so if you can you know, maximise the value of what they are and give them better information. So whether that farmer then uses that extra hour a week to do more work or spend it at home with his kids and, and family, it doesn't really matter how they do it. It's just why waste it? Why not give them a solution? And I think that's the, yeah, this whole supply chain thing. One of the things it comes back to when you see there's a lot of funding around different programs and different industries and a lot of them get picked because of we're trying to create jobs. Well, we don't, we don't need more jobs at the moment. I mean, that's the problem. There's no point, you know, building a, you know, we, we don't need another abattoir in w, WA because we don't have enough staff to run the ones that we do. Mm. Like, and so, and I think that probably goes for everywhere. So, like, I'm, it doesn't necessarily sit that well, but I'm not necessarily in favour of creating more jobs or creating jobs in the same space. Create new create, jobs. Create, create jobs more, that translate across industries. Like, create more you know, efficient create, jobs. Yep, absolutely. 
Right, well, we've probably taken a lot of your time, Rob. Speaking, oh, of, speaking, time. Of, speaking of using your time wisely. <laughs> Efficient. That's probably a good, a good tangent. So, I've used twice as much of your time than you've used as mine, so there you go. It's a good return on investment. That's all right. We're, uh, we're pretty, pretty quiet today. So thanks for coming along, Rob. Interesting insights, as always. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. See you when you've got nothing on. Oh, you wouldn't want to.